0: Well, hello, everybody. Welcome, welcome to a very, very special of Back to Basics podcast. This is going to be my 200th episode, and I have an incredible, incredible guest with me today. For more than 40 years, Lynn Twist has been a recognized global visionary committed to alleviating poverty and hunger and supporting social justice and environmental sustainability. From her work with Mother Teresa in Calcutta to the refugee camps in Ethiopia and the threatened rainforest of the Amazon, Lynn's ground work has brought her a deep understanding of the social tapestry of the world. The compelling stories and insights gained from her experiences inspired Lynn to write her best-selling award-winning book, The Soul of Money, transforming your relationship with money and life. She's also the founder of the Soul of Money Institute and has enlightened people in over 50 countries in board retreats, workshops, keynote presentations, and one-on-one coaching in the arena of fundraising with integrity, conscious philanthropy, strategic visioning, and cultivating a healthy relationship with money. And there's so much I'm leaving out of this, (laughs) but hello, Lynn, and welcome to Back to Basics.
1: Well, thank you for having me, Leticia. Wonderful to be here.
0: Oh, I'm so, so excited. And there's so much I want to talk to you about when I learned and when I was doing all the research and you, of course, I, I knew about you and I'm a big Soundstrue fan. So I know you have some powerful meditations and and, and and content there. But, you know, I was saying, oh, my God, how how can one do all these incredible things? It's not just work, it's work that matters. And that is so inspirational. And I'm so humbled that you said yes to this interview. Well, my pleasure, my pleasure, absolutely, <laughs> oh, and you know we, one of my goals with this podcast when I'm visionary is is how do we leave from a back to basics place, what I call the back to basics place and and you know, and how do we get there? and everybody has a journey, and so I'm always very curious to know the origin story, like who were you as a young child? Were you dreaming about helping the world and making such an amazing difference in the world? I mean, what was that those early years like? And what were you passionate about? Um,
1: well, I think uh, probably every child, when you find out that there's people in, in other parts of the world or other parts of your community that are hungry, or you see a homeless person, your heart goes out to them right away. So I think that's natural. I think that's human. So I wasn't in in any way different than you or any of the people listening in as a child, just wondering why in the world would we have hunger? Why would we, why would there be children without water and food? Why would there be people without houses? What's wrong? And then, you know, thinking as a little one, gosh, maybe when I grow up, I can fix that. Mm-hmm. So like everybody else, I've, I've had those memories when I think about my childhood. And then um, when I was an adolescent, my father died very suddenly of a heart attack in the middle of the night. Oh, it is sleep, and it wasn't expected. He was fifty years old. He was robust and healthy, and he was a musician, a very well-known band leader. Oh, and when he died, catapulted me. First of all, it caused, caused enormous grief for our whole family and confusion. He was a famous man, so my mother was overwhelmed and sent her four children one of one of which was me, the third and the four hmm. all of us off to be with friends because she was just like, oh my god, I was asleep. In my bed, you know, my mom, next to yes. my dad, she woke up the next morning and he was dead. And she, just a huge shock. She was 46.
0: Oh my God, I can um, even imagine.
1: So she, we were sort of farmed out and I was farmed out to a, a, a friend. But what I really did to find a place where I could heal or grieve, I guess grieve and be mm-hmm. really, really sad and cry and be mm-hmm. held was with my Sunday school teacher, a woman named Sister Benjamin, and she was just such a beautiful soul. I didn't go to Catholic school, even though we were Catholic, but I loved Sister Benjamin, and mm-hmm. I went to Sunday school every Sunday, and when my father died, she kind of, I didn't live with her or anything. I lived with another family while my mother was trying to sort things out, but I i went to her often. I don't don't really know how much, but I just remember her holding me, letting me cry, telling me how important it was to go through the sadness to not try to push it away to talk about it you know she was just incredible she was an angel mm-hmm. and um at that time um because she was so special to me and, and helped me get through that I thought well I should be a nun and I also mm-hmm. thought that because as a child you sometimes think when something goes wrong that it's your fault even though it you know he had a heart attack and it didn't have anything to do with me but I thought you know it was maybe I did something wrong that God would take my father away mm-hmm. so um I started to have a very deep spiritual, it was religious then, but now I realize it was a spiritual inner life. And that really expanded my capacity to be of service to the world. And when later on, fast forward a few years, I got involved in the EST training with Werner Erhard and I started studying or listening to Buckminster Fuller. The great architect, engineer and grandfather of the future in the, in, in, in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And he said, you, every human being, every little individual can make a difference with their life that has an impact on all humanity. When I heard that, I thought, Oh, that's me. I'm going to do that. So I was lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time when the hunger project was created. And I had the great privilege of working on ending world hunger, which is, was, as you can imagine, life changing, life altering. Life fulfilling and a deepening of the soul, so that's my fast forward, oh
0: my God, yeah, I'm right. like, oh my God, this is so so rich, and it has so so much wisdom, even in you sharing your life journey because obviously, I think it's a fact that we have to go through deep, deeply traumatic events, unfortunately to reach into who we are, like our, our, really connect to that essence. And it, it would be great if we didn't have to, but it's, you know, every interview, every person in my whole personal life, it's like you have to go and experience extreme sorrow or loss or tragedy in some shape or form to really put things into perspective also about what life is. And I'm yeah. sorry, was through the loss of of your dad. And uh, my husband is a musician, as you can see. So I, I can see. yes. So I can definitely feel that 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 was a, a obviously a, an experience that marked your life. And so, but w- would you say that any of that had to do you wanted to be a non, then you you eventually went for a career? Like how did the whole career you picked pan into what you eventually are doing today? That's something obviously that I'm curious about because I feel a lot of us in life kind of get stuck into, well, but I wanted to do this, but I'm doing that. And they think they cannot change. They cannot really reinvent themselves. But What, what do you have to say about that?
1: Uh, well, I, I really thought I would be a mom with children and a, you know, wonderful husband. And that was kind of what I thought was going to happen. And then I went to Stanford University and I met my husband, Bill, there. And we got married and started having kids, you know, almost right away. And um I became a little shut down then because he started to make money that was more than, you know, we needed. And that was the goal, of course, as a young MBA, he got, we went to business school and then he got out, he got a nice job. And we had three little kids and I was kind of chasing the, you know, keeping up with the Joneses thing, chasing, trying to look a certain way and right, wear the right clothes and collect the right things and have the right stuff in my house and drive the right car. I was all about the exterior world and comparing myself to other women and young women. And uh, I I got kind of entrapped in that keeping up with the Joneses, trying to be a yuppie kind of cool person Mm -hmm. um, until I took the EST training. So that was another huge thing for me, the death of my father, then the EST training which which now is the Landmark Forum, which I highly, highly recommend to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but its pre- predecessor was the EST training. And that just kind of woke me up to realize that I could make a difference with my life, that I really could. That, that 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 was not a pipe dream. That was a reality. And then I got to listen to Buckminster Fuller, the great Buckminster Fuller. And he had devoted his life to see if one little individual could make a difference that would impact all humanity. And he and he was actually 80 years old when I heard him speak. And his life had been a huge contribution to the world. He invented the geodesic dome. He, he invented an electric car in 1949. He was way ahead of his time. He was called the grandfather of the future. And he super inspired me. Maybe I can make a difference. I'm this mom, this wife with three kids doing some substitute teaching. But I just got kind of shot out of a cannon after that event and after the Est training and realized no, I can really make a difference. I don't have to be hampered by anything. It's all—it's just my own thoughts. Hmm. So the Hunger Project then was born. Werner Erhard and uh, Buckminster Fuller and other people, but particularly those two, uh, had a meeting that generated this idea, this radical idea to make the end of world hunger an idea whose time has come. And that was in 1977. And when I heard that, that just swept me off my feet. I thought, I'm going to do that. I'm going to be part of this. I'm going to make a contribution to Ending World Hunger. And I got deeply, deeply, deeply engaged with the Hunger Project and kind of brought my whole family along rather than, you know, being separate from them, which I was in the beginning. Then I realized, no, this is all of us. We all want to get involved in this. Mm -hmm. And so, um, That took me to India, Ethiopia, Bangladesh, all over the world. And then, you know, trying to manage being a mom and a wife that I was before and do all of that. And then I just kind of included everybody. I got my husband involved, got my kids involved. I got all our friends involved. And suddenly everything was about we can all take a stand, make a commitment, be people who are on this planet working to end world hunger. And the Hunger Project still is, you know, a taproot for me because it's about the transformation of the condition of life, knowing that we each one of us have the opportunity to take responsibility for the whole unfolding of the human journey, rather than be at the effect of it. We can create it. We can co-create what, what wants to, to happen, the, the world we want. So that was huge for me. And so I became very, very, very involved in the Hunger Project, and it taught me so much to be on the ground in Ethiopia trying to make things happen, working with women in Senegal uh, around a dry well, being in Bangladesh during the tsunami and the floods, being in India, in the slums of India, and, and working with people, especially women who were having more children than they could handle or even wanted, and seeing the humanity and the structures and systems that we have in place that force people into conditions of poverty and hunger and begin to do what I could to dismantle those things and uplift the people who were caught in those, those circumstances.
0: I can see why you brought everybody in because yeah, you, I, I hear you talk and I'm like, I want, I want, I want to be part. Mm. You're, you're so inspirational. It was going to be as I heard you talk. I was going to ask you where you was your family involved because I hear a lot of people that go through similar processes and they feel that. It's almost like a solo journey because the people that surround them are not with them on that process. And they feel like they have to kind of make a compromising to keep moving forward into that calling, but not being able to bring the people that they love on board. But it's obviously not the case for you because you you are an influencer. You you really can ignite fire. And I think that's that's really a blessing. Well,
1: in the first few years, I was leaving my family to do these things. I had a wonderful nanny. My husband was starting to make some significant financial resources. So I could have a nanny and I did. And my wonderful nanny Tootie, she was with us for 25 years. So mm-hmm. she really helped me raise the kids. But it wasn't the beginning that I I was doing this over here and, and my husband was doing his business. And then there were the kids and the nanny and we would both come back as much as we could. But It wasn't harmonious. It was struggle. It was, I was always where I, you know, if I would be in in a meeting in Ethiopia with the government, I would remember it was snack day in second grade (laughs) and did the nanny send the snacks? You know, I'd be like, or if Mm. I was at home, I would be thinking about the the meeting in Ethiopia that I had to miss because I was going to spring sing for my daughter. So I was a divided, I, I was living a divided life until... Until I had a a revelation, I would say, it was really out of a breakdown. I was just a wreck. I was crying all the time. I couldn't, I was never, I was never with the kids enough. I was never with my job enough. I was always on a plane. I was, I would miss a plane and then I would miss the soccer championship. And then Mm -hmm. I would beat the soccer championship, but I would miss a big important thing at the UN. Or, you know, I was always not fully where I was, if I can put, myself. I was in like, Definitely. I was divided self, And so I had a meeting with my children and my husband, Bill, and we sat on the floor of the family room. You know, I think you can all imagine this in in your own home. And I started to cry. And I said, I just need to tell all of you, I don't think I can stop. I'm totally obsessed, but more than obsessed, I'm deeply and profoundly committed to ending world hunger. And I can feel that I have a role to play. And I, um, I struggle so much that I'm away so much and I miss things and I'm not there for you. But then when I'm here for you, I'm worrying about all of that. And I need to just apologize, ask for your support, your forgiveness and let you know, I don't think I can stop. And it was the most, you know, we we're, I'm all crying and everybody was crying. You know, we were all, it was very moving and very cathartic. And then my, My daughter, who's the middle child of our three, she's kind of our our comedian. She was probably eight. She said this thing. She said, Mom, if you can end world hunger, we don't want you taking us to the orthodontist. (laughs) Someone else can do that. Tootie can do that. Hmm. We're proud of you, Mom. And we all started laughing when she said Hmm. the (laughs) Um, and and then we all started laughing and then my sons they were like 10 and 6 mom we have the best life we've got Ethiopians staying in the guest room we have people astronauts for dinner we've got you know when we go away for a spring break most people you know our friends they go to Aspen we go to Micronesia with you I mean (laughs) that's so cool we have the coolest life and they they actually really just released me of all my guilt and my shame and I was never there and those poor kids and they said, no, no, this is we're we're having a blast. Oh, wow. Wow. And they gave me their permission, their love, their their validation, their affirmation, my husband too. And from then on, I was a hundred percent where I was when I was there, including when I was with them. Instead of being divided all the time, mm-hmm. I would be a hundred percent at the UN that I would come home, I stopped missing planes, I stopped trying to be 10,000 places at once. I really started to create my life in a way that I prioritized things and made sure that there's things I'm gonna miss, but there's things I'm not gonna miss. And then I would be honest about it instead of trying to do everything. So that was a really big turning point as a mom, as a a wife, as a woman, as what I call myself now a pro-activist not an activist against, but an activist for. And that really was a defining moment.
0: Wow, well, I thank you for sharing all that because it was as Oprah would say, which of course I'm even like, oh my God, I'm gonna have the first interview I think that I have with somebody that was interviewed by Oprah, but an aha moment because that resonates, I know with me particularly, but with a lot of people I know and mothers especially that we have these high standards of what we want to be and we want to be excellent at everything we do. And we feel this constant, you know, lack of something that it's, it's hard to carry. And so the fact that you say I was honest about it, that I think is where a lot of us fail. Like you want to make it good. We are striving to make it okay, but it's not about making it okay. It's about explaining what we're doing and and really getting the the buy-in from your family. So when your kids saw what you're doing and the impact it has, of course they were all in. And and that's a great strategy. I, I'm personally going going to <laughs> to use it. And I think that, that when the kids are growing, are older a little bit, you know, I understand when I my, my ba- kids were babies, I suffer a lot because you could not explain a baby, mommy, you know, is doing something important. Now they that they, they, you can, you know, my little one is almost eight and a 12 year old and they can get that, oh, mommy's doing infor- important stuff. And yeah. Uh, yeah, but I struggle because when I talk to uh, very successful women that maybe don't have kids, they don't see that part of the struggle that well. Yeah. No. than than someone that has to juggle that important ball of life. So I thank you for sharing it so candidly with, with us.
1: Well, it's, it's I actually, my, my heart goes out to especially single moms. And there's so many of them now who have full-time jobs and full-time children and sometimes way more children than they they kind of thought they were going to have. <laughs> um, and, and they have no financial resources and they don't have a nanny and they don't have help. So what I, what I said is, is, is my story, but I know my, my heart really does go out to people who are managing a career and motherhood, no matter what their financial circumstances, but a special bow to the women who have very little financial, uh, help or not enough financial resources to get much help. And if their mother doesn't live nearby or she's passed away and they're trying to figure out how to raise their kids and pay put food on the table and pay their rent and buy the school you know the new tennis it's just it's just staggering to me what women do just staggering stunning staggering awesome and i just want to say i don't have a solution um but for me being honest and truthful with my kids made a huge difference and and there were still times where i was heartbroken because i missed something you know i still look back and oh god Damn, I'm so sorry I didn't make the da-da-da-da. Mm-hmm. Wish I'd been there. That was such a high point for my son or my daughter or my other son. But at the same time, and at the same time, if we're true to ourselves, that sets a model for our children, no matter what that looks like. And that that's a teaching of its own. So I I really appreciate it. And I just wanted to shout out to to single moms, or just all moms, but particularly single moms and career moms. For the amazing, amazing stuff we do that nobody can see. Nobody almost ever acknowledges you for. You have to do it, or you know, you can't not do it. You don't have a choice. And you do it. Thank God. And bless the mothers of this world.
0: Well, I'm shouting out with you because uh, I I absolutely agree. So, I mean, you've done so many things. Of course, that it's hard to pick one, but the one that I think is very important is also the foundation that 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 you created the the soul of money. Yes. And, And it's such a great name. I love it, by the way, Um, (laughs) uh, because, yeah, when when you think about it, like, yeah, the money must have soul at some point. And uh, and you talk about a lot of the money culture. And this is something that you also are raising awareness. And, And it's so, I think, important because the more and more you hear stories like you were people, you know, that have everything, they still feel that something's missing. We were honored here also to have Melissa Bernstein, founder of uh, Melissa and Dog Toy um, Empire. And, you know, people, I mean, she makes toys, she designs toys for living, perfect family, husband. And she shared, I wasn't happy. And she's very open about it. And Mm -hmm. so, and it's because a lot of it is that intensity that money brings into our life and that Mm -hmm. catching up. So would you share what, you know, the, the essence behind founding that organization and the work you're doing there?
1: Well, it's an institute called the Soul of Money Institute, and it's based on a book I wrote uh, called The Soul of Money. Actually, the, the way I'd like to talk about it is I don't know if money has a soul, but we do. And we've separated our soul from our money. Most people are anxious, upset, worried, and feel wrong and bad in their relationship with money. And I can tell you that it seems like the people that would feel wrong and bad and anxious and upset and frantic in their relationship with money would be just the people who don't have enough, which is people who are on the lower end of the, um, you know, economic spectrum. But the truth is, and I can tell you personally, it goes all the way through the culture to the billionaires who I actually also have a chance of great opportunity and privilege of working with some of our global billionaires. They too, if you can imagine thinking you don't have enough. I mean, really, I mean, come on. But they think that too, because it's not about the amount, it's a mindset. And that's what the Soul of of Money Institute addresses. We live in a unconscious, unexamined mindset, which a mindset is before thinking, before deliberation. It's from whence you see the world, almost like a lens you're looking through to see the world, a lens of scarcity. And that lens of scarcity is a way of seeing the world where everything you look at, it's not enough. I didn't get enough sleep. I'm not tall enough. I'm not thin enough. I'm not smart enough. There isn't enough square feet in my house. We don't have enough market share. Uh, we don't have enough sex. We don't have enough love. I don't have enough this. We don't have enough that. They don't have enough of this. We don't have enough of that. I didn't get, I didn't get enough done today. I'm, you know, I I don't have enough time. It's a there's not enough frame for almost everything. And when you live in that frame, which almost everybody does, because that's the culture we live in, it's the mindset of scarcity we live in, there's, there's never enough. And you have to get more. And you're desperate to get more. And even global billionaires, I mean, it just sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But they think they've got to have another plane, or they've got to have a bigger house, or they've got to have a helicopter to get to their island. And they've got to have a bigger island because the helicopter pad is too small. I mean, you know, it's just, it never stops. It goes forever. And it doesn't matter where you are in this grand continuum that goes now, you know, from people who have almost nothing to people who have, you know, half of the wealth of the world. Everybody has a mindset or is was born into the culture that we live in, the culture of scarcity. There's not enough to go around and you have to have more. So there's three toxic myths I write about in my book, The Soul of Money. First toxic myth is there's not enough, which I'm calling a toxic lie. Mm -hmm. The second is more is better, which I'm calling a toxic lie. Mm -hmm. And the third is that's just the way that it is, which I'm calling a toxic lie. And I'm calling those three things, toxic lie from the mindset, unconscious, unexamined mindset way of looking at the world. I do know very intimately there are people who do not have enough food. There's people who don't have access to water. There's people who don't have enough employment. There's a lot of people around this planet like that. I've worked with them. I know that very intimately. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about us, people like us, probably people listening to this podcast, who live in the affluent world, but see the world as if there's never enough for them. And it starts to be a deficit relationship with yourself. So it's not just there's not enough, it's not enough, we don't have enough. It's I am not enough. I am not enough. So the Soul of Money Institute works on this unconscious, unexamined mindset to clear it away. It doesn't go away forever because it's the culture we live in. It's not it's the culture we live in and then we personalize it and think it's our fault. But actually you can disaggregate, disengage, disentangle yourself from that culture and think about how the universe meets you with exactly what you need over and over and over again, sometimes miraculously, sometimes in ways that you don't want, like a bankruptcy or a divorce, but you get exactly what you need and want from this universe. And um, that is the context that I recommend as the radical surprising truth, the context of sufficiency. We don't have not what we need, we have what we need. And sometimes it's something like a pandemic to disrupt the way we're living in a way that we rethink, re-see, and redesign our lives. Sometimes it's something like the climate crisis, which you could say is not happening to us, it may be happening for us. It may be the feedback, the strong, uncompromising feedback that's destructive and harmful, yes, and scary. But it needs to be that strong for us to change course, for us to transform the direction we're headed. So if you hold that life is giving you exactly what you need, rather than you have to have more, you have to have more, and you live in lack, you can live in a in a, in a a space of gratitude and fulfillment all the time, no matter how much you have or don't have. It's not about that. It's about your relationship with money, your relationship with life. Mm-hmm. So that's the Soul of Money book and message and institute.
0: Very powerful. And of course, you know, I'll, I'll share the, all the, the links to your page and where people can get the book and all the amazing work you're doing. And, uh, you know, everything you said, it's so true. And I think people don't really, we don't realize this, like this is happening. So if you were to give somebody one, actionable advice in terms of how do I get stuck from that mentality? Like I know I do it. Is that the practice of gratitude? What what, what would be like one small step that everybody could take? Well, I have to tell them three. I'm sorry. One mm-hmm.
1: is to buy the Soul of Money book, which will of help you.
0: <laughs> yes,
1: absolutely. And second, number two is to buy Living a Committed Life, the book I just finished, mm-hmm. which will really help you no matter where you are on the economic spectrum or the spectrum of life. Living a committed life will help you step into a life of greater meaning and purpose. Then the answer to your question really is, yes, gratitude is a huge game changer. It's so simple. We don't even think that it could possibly work, but it does. If you actually begin to work the muscle, exercise the muscle of gratitude, there's a muscle, there's rivulets in the brain. Where no matter what you're doing, you can see the beauty in it. No matter what transpires, what circumstances befall you, you can see the beauty, the the gratefulness in there, the great fullness of life, which is the source of the word gratefulness. And to have that practice, that frame, you know, how grateful I am to be talking to you at this moment. I didn't even know you existed. Now oh, here we are in this beautiful conversation. Hopefully it's benefiting people. Absolutely. You know, to wake up in the morning grateful for even two hours of sleep, the sweet territory of sleep, how delicious to even have two or three or four or five or six hours, whatever you got. Be grateful for it rather than grumbling that you didn't get enough sleep. Rather than looking at the clock and thinking, "Ah, I don't have enough time, refuse to rush and cherish. If it's 15 minutes, great. If it's 27 minutes, fabulous. If it's two hours, awesome. But cherish that time you have to start your day. Being grateful, cherishing, making a difference with what you have, which is the principle of sufficiency. What you appreciate will appreciate in the nourishment of your appreciation. So to live in gratitude and appreciation and shift the conversation in your head from, I don't have enough, there's not enough, it's not enough, we're going to be in terrible shape, oh my God, the the world's going to hell in a handbasket, to I am so grateful to be alive at a time when things are so exciting. I am so grateful to be healthy and well so that I can address myself to the problems of the day. I am so blessed that I woke up this morning with a mission and a vision to do something useful today with my life. I am so grateful to have work that means something and that I get compensated for. Oh my God, etc. cetera. The practice of gratitude, grateful living, which is a whole way of thinking, is is totally and completely transformational and free.
0: Mm. Well, thank you for that nugget of wisdom. I know I could talk forever with you. I know that we have limited time. So I want to ask you, is there any other exciting, I mean, you have so much going on, exciting initiatives. I know you have a seminar coming up called uh, For Raising From the Heart, which I think is fantastic. The subject, anything else or even that that you want to share that's exciting you these days?
1: Well, I'll I'll talk about that because uh, I would love for people to participate in fundraising from the heart. I I've been fundraising all my life since I was five years old, and I love asking people for money for the things I care about. I love fundraising. I not only do I not resist it, I adore it, because I think it's sacred work, moving money away from fear and towards love. I think that's what it is, no matter what you're raising money for. So I teach fundraising from the heart, which is an all day course can interact with me and my colleague Sarah Vetter and it's not expensive we make it super affordable and learn about fundraising and fundraising so that you're effective and so you love it rather than resist it i'll be doing a uh, a live event with my dear friend Jack Canfield who's the number mm. one best selling author of the chicken soup for the soul series he really pushed me to write this new book Living a Committed Life Uh, He and I will be talking about how important it is now to step up and to step into life. Not your own life only, but a life and a purpose larger than yourself. And so my book, Living a Committed Life, there'll be book events, there'll be podcasts like this for probably a year. Uh (laughs) If you go to my website, Lynn Twist, or actually just you can type in my name or you can go to soulofmoney.org. You'll learn about all the things that are going on if you kind of root around in there. And then I will put in another word for the Pachamama Alliance. I work with Indigenous Peoples of the Rainforest in the Amazon. And we also do really extraordinary online programs all over the world. So go to Pachamama.org and be inspired.
0: Mm, Love that. Well, I'm inspired. I, I also like I knew this was going to be great, but it's just been I'm grateful for this interview, grateful for everything you do. You're just your humility. I mean, anybody that listens to you and, and knows and matches the work you've done, the people you've met and how, you know, available you are, how vulnerable that's I really think that's. That's what it counts. It's being your authentic. When people say be your authentic self, like now I'm going to, you're going to be one of the examples that would pop into my life, in my mind, because that's really how I felt this conversation was. Mm. So I really thank you for that. And the last question mm. I make everybody is an easy one to answer. Besides everything you share, I always ask people what makes you tick. Is there anything else that you haven't shared? Other than I can guess a few more hours of sleep would be one thing that makes it tick. That mm-hmm. that is your go-to thing to do when you're feeling a little bit down or, or disconnected to your soul. I go
1: outside. I live near the um a forest called the Presidio. And I have a, a tree that's my friend, hmm. a mother tree. If you've read um, anything from Suzanne Simard, she wrote The Mother Tree, uh, mm-hmm. Finding The Mother Tree. And I feel so grateful to the natural world, the, the sky, the sunrise, the sunset. It's all a miracle. It happens every day. But when you actually witness it or take time to pay attention to it, it's a miracle. When you look at a tree, a really big, beautiful mother tree, There's a thousand species living in that tree. The roots go deep into the ground or they go up there on top of the ground, like in the rainforest, they go far. The tree has been alive way longer than me, the one I go to. It's seen incredible things, I'm sure. And trees have a network of wisdom that they connect with underground in the mycorrhizal part of the the earth. And um, they're becoming some of my dearest and closest friends and advisors. So that's
0: what I do and it works. Mm.
1: Mm.
0: I love that. I love the part where you say friends and advisors. So um, (laughs) next time I look at a tree, I'm going (laughs) to ask for some advice. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Lynn. It's an honor. Thank you for being my episode 200. I'm so happy that it was you. And I hope that everybody enjoyed as much as I have. And thank you all for tuning in for all this time. And until the next time, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.